And as we come back to the book of Ephesians, where we've been now for several months, we come to chapter 4 this morning, and as we get there, we're going to continue our look at the first six verses, which we've titled, The Practice Fitting for People of Our Position. It's practice fitting for people of our position. And as we got to this portion of Scripture, we noticed that Paul introduced this section to us by saying in verse 1, I therefore... A prisoner of the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Isn't that good? I therefore urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So what Paul says here in verse 1 is that based on all of the truth, everything that I've given you over the last three chapters with regard to your position before God as you are in Christ, based on all of that, I want you to walk in a way that is reflective of that position. I want you to walk in a way that reflects people who have the privilege that you have. The word that he uses there is to walk around. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. And what he means by that is he means that you are to conduct yourselves as a pattern of life. That's what he's talking about. He's saying you are to conduct yourself as a pattern of life of people who are deserving of the calling that you've received. We want you to walk in a way that is reflective of your great position before Jesus in God through Jesus Christ. And so we spent a quite a lot of time a couple of weeks ago understanding what that means, but basically what we decided is that Paul is saying as a pattern of life, you should conduct yourselves in a way that is fitting for who you are. Doesn't that make sense? What a challenge, eh? And then in verses 2 and 3, Paul goes on to tell us what characterizes people of your position. He goes on to tell us what it looks like, what kinds of things characterize the pattern of life that is fitting for people in your position. And then we took a look at the first characteristic, which was humility. Now, one thing that I always find very satisfying, if I could confess this to you, is when I hear that someone who's been in church with us on Sunday morning, someone who has heard the Word of God, they've heard the instruction from the Word of God, and they've taken that instruction, and they've allowed it to take root in their hearts, and they've allowed it to take root to the point that it impacts their behaviors, and it impacts their processes through their thought process through the weeks. And that always is such an encouragement to me. And typically what will happen is I'll hear from some of you later in the week, maybe by email or text message, or I might sometimes hear from you the following Sunday how challenged you were by the Word of God from the previous Sunday, and you'll sometimes share with me how the instruction, you've allowed it to take root, and it's really challenged your life. And I think the reason that I, that I find it so satisfying is because sometimes I struggle wondering if I really am hearing from the Lord, if I really have a message that the Lord has laid on my hearts to share with you. And I, I sometimes struggle with a little bit of confidence in that, wondering if I'm actually hearing the word that the Lord would have me to share with you. But if I'm being honest with you, the last time we were together, two weeks ago, it was really a, a pretty unusual week for me. And let me tell you why. Because I have never shared a message on a Sunday morning in which I've had so many people who were so anxious to put the Word of God to work that very same day. Because last time we were together, we spoke about humility. And so I had a lot of people who came up to me after service last Sunday, and, <laughs> and they wanted to make sure that they kept me humble, and so they told me how bad the message stunk last time we were... Yeah, they just wanted to make sure I was conducting myself in all humility, and so several of you came up and promptly put that word in my heart. And so thank you for sharing with me. The way that you eagerly were embracing the principles of the Word of God last week helped me to walk in humility. So thank you for that. You're great friends. But as we uh, began to discuss the conduct of people 
in our position. We began with verse 2, and when we got to verse 2, we noticed that Paul says that we conduct our lives with all humility. So the very first characteristic of people who are in your position is humility, and you should conduct yourself with all humility. And so what that means is we decided that if we could just be mindful of the holiness of God, if we could keep in front of us the holiness and the righteousness and the purity of God, and if we could remember our own sinful condition, and if we can remember the sinful lifestyle from which God has rescued us, then we would have absolutely no reason to conduct ourselves with anything but humility, would we? If we remember where we came from, there's no reason for us to be proud. There's no reason to think that we finally made it because in honesty, we know that we haven't. We know who we are. We know who we are, and and we wonder to ourselves, who are we that we should be prideful? What do we have that we should boast about? And so now I want to take you back to verse 1, and we're going to read all the way through verse 3 if we could. So beginning in verse 1, it says this, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Look, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So those people who are walking around in a way that is fitting for people of our position, they do it, first of all, in humility. And not just a little humility, but the Word says all humility. And secondly, then, they do it in gentleness. Do you see that? And I think it's best for us to see that word all as applying to both the word humility and gentleness. So it should sound like this. We should read it by saying that we should walk in all humility and in all gentleness. That that word should go with both of those. And so I want to spend a little bit of time, if I could, this morning, much like we did last week. And I want to help you understand this concept of gentleness. This is an important concept for you to understand. You're going to see it translated in many of your translations as the word meekness. You might see it translated as meekness. But I want you to know that it's the Greek word proutes, which comes from the Greek word praus. And it seems that it's often poorly defined in the world today. Let me explain what I mean. As I was looking around trying to understand how people in the world today might understand this concept of weakness, I went to a website where I found this vocabulary page from a school's vocabulary book. And as I was looking at this vocabulary page, I came across this word meekness. And this is what this vocabulary description said of the word meekness. Quote, the adjective meek describes a person who is willing to go along with whatever other people do. Like a meek classmate who won't speak up even when he or she is treated unfairly. This is the world's definition of meekness. And I thought, that's really interesting. So I began to dig around a little bit more, and I went to different dictionaries, and I'd like to share with you some of those definitions. The first one that I found that was rather interesting was that someone who is meek is quiet and unwilling to disagree or fight. Or how about this one? It is a deficiency in courage. How about this one? Docile under provocation. Let me give you one more. Too submissive, easily imposed upon, spineless, and spiritless. That's what the world thinks of meekness. That's what the world thinks of as meek. And I think that these are actually a pretty fair representation of the world's understanding of meekness or the world's understanding of gentleness. We see that the meek man is someone who's a doormat. 
He's someone who can be easily steamrolled. He's someone who can easily be pushed around. But I don't think that's the best understanding of the biblical concept of meekness. I don't believe that's the best understanding of the biblical concept of gentleness. And so to help you better understand this concept of prouse or prowtase, I'm going to give you several different illustrations if I could do that. One of them is from my own personal life, then I'm going to give you two more from Scripture. And I think by the time we're done, you're going to understand this concept much better. So now this morning, I'm going to violate one of the principles of Homiletics 101 by sharing with you an illustration I've already used a couple of times, if you will allow me to do that. And the reason that I want to do that is because this is a great picture of the concept of meekness or gentleness. And so if you just put up that picture for me, I would appreciate it. Isn't that great? So that's my daughter. She must have been about two years old there. And she's sitting on the back of my Doberman, and he was a great friend to me for many years. His name is Jake. And so here's my daughter sitting on Jake's back, and as you're looking at this picture, you can see him as one of the meekest or gentlest beings that you have ever known. He is the sweetest, he is the most submissive being you've ever known, yet he was an incredibly powerful animal. He was very, very powerful, but he was completely submissive. I mean, look at that. Here she is, sitting on his back, pulling on his ears, and this dog just gently and sweetly allows her to do it. But that's how he was. That was the dog's nature. He had been taught to be gentle, and he had been taught to be meek, and so he would endure things like that. My wife and her mother like to buy things to put on Jake's head to dress him up for the holidays. And one year at Christmas, the two of them came, came to my house with some antlers that they had found. Do you remember that? They had found some antlers, and they put these antlers on Jake's head, and then they took pictures of him wearing antlers. I can remember another time they had been out of the store, and they found some rabbit ears for Easter, and so they came home, and they put them on his head, and then, you know, it was a lot of fun. He's looking funny. He's wearing these things on his head, and we'd stand there, you know, taking pictures of him and laughing at him, and he'd kind of duck his head like he was embarrassed. But he would tolerate it the whole time as we stood there laughing at him. In fact, if you were to watch this dog, if you saw the way he would duck his head when I would scold him, you might say to yourself, this dog is too submissive. This dog is a real sissy. He's easily imposed upon. He's spineless. This dog is a coward. You would call him gentle. You would call him meek. See, he never lashed out at anyone when they put antlers on his head. He never lashed out at our little girl when she sat on his back pulling on his ears. He was completely submissive. He was completely gentle. I can remember one time my brothers coming over to visit me, and uh, we were like most brothers when we got together. You know, we loved to pick on each other and push each other around and have fun. And I can remember one time as we were roughhousing a little bit and kind of wrestling around, my older brother thought it would be fun, and he grabbed a hold of me, and he shoved me into the refrigerator, you know, and then he stood in front of me, and he was acting like he was punching me in the stomach. And so here he is making all kinds of noise and just creating a commotion and having fun, but he hadn't accounted for my meek and gentle friend who was in the room next to us. And so when Jake saw the way that my older brother was treating me, he was no longer gentle and he was no longer submissive. This dog, who would sit quietly and gently as a little two-year-old girl sat on his back, pulling on his ears, sitting there gently as we laughed at him and snapped pictures of him with antlers on his head, was no longer spineless. 
This sweet, gentle dog was no longer easily imposed upon. My brother had crossed the line. He had gone too far, and Jake charged into the room, and he jumped at my brother, and he grabbed him right by the muffin top. It was great. (laughs) You see, my dog was ready to fight. He was ready to go. He was not afraid of what might happen to him. He didn't care about what people thought of him. He was getting into the fight. He was engaging and he was taking an aggressive stand and he didn't pause to think twice about what would happen. You see, someone was violating his master and he would not stand for it. That is a picture of biblical meekness. That's how it works. It doesn't mean you're a coward. It doesn't mean you're spineless. Let me give you another example. How many of you know of Moses. In the Old Testament, we read that Moses was the most meek man in the entire world. In fact, if we go to Numbers chapter 12, verse 1, I want to show you what a great picture of the biblical concept of meekness or gentleness that Moses actually was. This is what the Bible says of him. Now the man Moses was very meek, more than all of the people who were on the face of the earth. Think about that. This is the same word. If we were to look at it in the Septuagint, you would see the word praus or prautes here to describe Moses. He was meek. It's that same word. There was no one, in fact, as meek as Moses on the entire face of the world. Think about that. Nobody in the world was as meek as he was. But here was a guy who could have had it all. Here was a guy who could have had anything that he wanted. He was raised in the house of Pharaoh. He was incredibly wealthy. He was living in extreme privilege. Yet, for the sake of becoming the servant of God, he gave up absolutely everything and he became an enemy to the very nation that had provided such privilege for him. He became an enemy of the very nation that had given him such privilege because he was serving God. And still the Bible tells us that even then he was still more meek than anyone else on the face of the earth. Think about that. Here's a man who led an entire nation of millions of people from slavery in Egypt boldly. This man walked right into the palace of Pharaoh. He walked right into the palace of the most powerful man in the world. And he demanded face to face that that man release his people from captivity. And we know that he won the battle. We know that he led the people away from their captors. We know that Moses stood face to face with God talking to him as a man with his friend. This is Moses. And yet, he was the gentlest and the most meek man on the face of the earth. If anyone had a right to be feared, if anyone had a right to be respected, it was Moses. And yet he still refused to stand up for himself. He was still known as the most gentle and the most meek man on the planet. At one point, he was so meek that Aaron and Miriam attacked him. They became upset with him because he had married a Cushite woman and they began to complain about him. And they began to cause all kinds of problems. And they said to themselves, we don't need Moses. And in verse 2 of chapter 12, they had said, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not also spoken through us? And I love what the verse says here. And the Lord heard it. Listen, friends, Moses would not defend himself. Here are these people complaining about him, causing all kinds of problems for him, creating problems with his leadership, undermining him, and he still would not defend himself. But the Lord had heard it. The Lord had heard what they said. And remember, God himself had chosen Moses. 
And so then the Lord became angry with Aaron and he became angry with Miriam. And he said, in effect, listen, I have chosen Moses to lead you. I have appointed him. I have made him your leader. Who do you think you are? I have established him as your leader. And then he struck Miriam with leprosy from head to toe for complaining against God's chosen leader. That's what happened. And you know what Moses did? Moses was so meek that he stood up and he said, yeah, that's exactly what you got coming. That's what you get for talking about me. Look who's looking like a leper. (laughs) Miriam is. That's not what he did. You know what he did? He begged God on her behalf. He begged God to have mercy on Miriam and he prayed that he would restore her. And you know what? God did it. And Moses would not speak a harsh word in defense of himself, even under these conditions. Even as badly as he had been mistreated. But how many of you remember what happened when Moses received the Ten Commandments in the wilderness in the book of Exodus? Do you remember that? You remember the story? The nation of Israel had come down through the wilderness. They had made it to Mount Sinai where Moses had gone up to the mountain to meet with God, and he was going to receive the law of God. And while he was there, God physically, I love this, God physically wrote the law onto tablets of stone. God wrote the law onto tablets of stone, and he gave them to Moses. So Moses takes the tablet. He's on his way down the hill, meek and mild, gentle as he can be. And when he got down there, He saw that the Israelites were partying and they were worshiping a false god. And this meek and gentle Moses, who was carrying in his hand stones that had been handwritten by God, think about that, walks down the hill, he sees this, he becomes so infuriated that he took these stones with God's own handwriting on it and he throws them to the ground and he smashes them. In a fit of rage, he runs down to the people of Israel. He takes the golden image that they had made. He grinds it into powder. He mixes it with water and he makes them drink it. He makes them eat the God that they had made. And as if that weren't enough, then he had several of his mighty men go through the camp and slaughter 3,000 of his own people. 3,000 of them. He was furious. Let me ask you, was Moses a coward? Does that sound like something that a sissy would do? When Moses saw the way the people were treating the Lord, he was not gentle anymore. When he saw the way that the people were treating the Lord, he was not submissive anymore. This man, the meekest in all the world who would sit quietly and gently as people spoke poorly of him and as they undermined him, he was no longer spineless. He was no longer a coward. He was no longer easily imposed upon. Those people had crossed the line and Moses became furious and he charged right in. He was ready to fight. He was ready to engage. He was not afraid of what might happen to him. It was time for him to take an aggressive stand. And so that's what he did. He didn't think twice about it, did he? Someone was violating his master and he wasn't going to stand for that. But how could we ever have a discussion about meekness and gentleness without considering the most perfect example? So for a perfect model of meekness and gentleness, we need to look no further than Jesus Christ. I want to talk to you about that a little bit. I'm going to take you to Matthew chapter 11. We're going to take a look at verses 29 and 30. And this is what Jesus says about Himself. He says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am... Prouse, I am proud taste that's gentle here. 
I am lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. And when Jesus says here, I'm gentle, that's the word. It's prouse. It's that proutes. You know, I'm usually not a big fan of movies about the life of, of Jesus Christ. I don't know how many of you ever like to watch those, but it seems that invariably the character that plays the part of Jesus Christ depicts him as some sort of a moon-faced wimp. It does. But I want you to know that I don't think that's who Jesus was. Let me explain what I mean. His body had never known sin. Do you know that? And because of that, because He was divine in His nature, He had never been weakened by physical illness. Think about that. Jesus Christ had never been sick. He was not weak. He was not a coward. He was not a sissy. He was prouse. He had more power than you can even begin to imagine. I want you to consider for a minute the Old Testament book of 2 Kings. And it tells us how the Assyrian army came against the northern kingdom of Israel, if you'll think back. You remember that the northern kingdom was carried away into captivity. And the king of the Assyrian army came to Hezekiah, who was the king of Judah at the time. And this is what he said to him. He said, hey, look around you. Look how powerful my army is. Look how strong I am. No one can stand against me. All of your neighboring countries have tried to fight me and they've all lost. I want you to know, Hezekiah, that no God has ever been able to save the nations around you from me. Look how powerful I am. Surrender or I'm going to do to you just as I have done to all of the nations around you. Give up now before we come through and slaughter your entire nation. That's what he said. And you know what? The Lord heard it. And that night, the Lord sent a single angel. One angel. And you know what happened? That angel went through the army of Assyria, and that night, one angel killed 185,000 Assyrian men. One night, one angel, 185,000 men. The night that Jesus was betrayed... As he was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, you'll remember that a group of armed guards came up to arrest him. You'll remember that Peter, loving the Lord and out of his mind, I'm convinced, grabbed the sword out of his robe, wherever he was carrying it. He pulled it out. He was going to fight. Peter takes out his sword and he swings it at the very closest thing to him and it happened to be the servant of the high priest. The high priest's servant ducked Peter missed his head, but he took off his ear. And do you remember what Jesus said to him? Take a look at verse 52 in Matthew chapter 26. This is what Jesus said as he was being arrested by a mob of armed men. Peter, put your sword back into its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and He will at once send me more than what? Twelve legions of angels. A legion was a measure of Roman military. It was a unit of military soldiers. And one legion consisted of approximately 5,000 men. So I want you to think about this. One legion consisted of 5,000 men. So if you're good at math, you would know that 12 legions then would be about 60,000 men. Okay? But Jesus wasn't just calling 12,000 or 60,000 men, was He? What was He calling? 
He said, if I want to, I can call 12 legions, I can call 60,000 angels, and they will be here instantly. I can have 60,000 angels here right now to battle on my behalf immediately. I don't have to wait. They'll be here as soon as I want them. And if one angel could kill 185,000 men at one time, what do you think the chances are that this group of roughly 1,000 Roman soldiers who were carrying clubs and sticks who had come to arrest Jesus Christ could stop those angels and still have arrested Jesus Christ if he had not wanted to be arrested? What do you think the chances were that those 1,000 men could have taken on 60,000 angels and arrest Jesus Christ against their will? Do you think that's possible? But did you know that Jesus didn't even need the angels to stop the arrest? Did you know that? You see, the power of the Word of Jesus Christ was all that He needed. All He needed was the power of His own words. You see, at His command, by the words of His own mouth, the sea and the wind obeyed. When Jesus said, be still, the wind stopped and the sea settled down and it was instantly calm. At His command, bodies that were suffering from congenital illnesses were made well instantly. By his command, evil spirits left people that they were possessing and they were made well instantly. At his command, everything submitted to him instantly. John chapter 18 tells us that as his armed mob approached Jesus Christ at the time of his arrest, they came into the garden carrying torches and clubs and spears and Jesus stepped forward from the darkness to meet them and he said, who are you looking for? And they said, we're seeking Jesus of Nazareth. And verse 6 in chapter 18 tells us that when Jesus responded by saying the words, I am He, that the entire armed mob fell over backwards. Jesus just said, I am He. And they couldn't stand against the words of Jesus Christ. Who are you looking for? I'm looking for Jesus of Nazareth. Well, that's me. I am He. And they all fell to the ground by the power of His voice. That's how powerful He is. He did not need 60,000 angels. He didn't need any of the help. He could have spoken the word Himself and He could have overpowered those men. On two occasions in His ministry, once at the very beginning and once at at the end, just a few days before His arrest, this meek, Gentle Jesus walked into the temple during Passover, which was the busiest feast of the entire year. And when he got there, he saw the fraud of the commerce that had come into the celebration of the Passover. He saw the way that the people were treating the temple of God. And when he saw how they were violating the Lord, and when he saw how these people were taking advantage of God's people, do you know what he did? He became furious. Instantly he was irate and he made a whip and he single-handedly turned over all the tables, cut loose all of the animals, and literally cleared the temple by himself of thousands and thousands of people. One man. Was he a sissy? I don't think so. Was he powerless? Was he spineless? I don't think so. You see, when he saw the Father's house and his institution being violated by a bunch of phonies and by a bunch of money grubbers, he jumped into action. He went right in. They had crossed the line. They had gone too far. And now it was time for him to take action to defend the Father. He was defending his master. Yet, in meekness and in gentleness, think about this. With all of that power, he allowed himself to be arrested gently, quietly, He followed them as a common criminal knowing what they were about to do to him. He followed them without fighting. He followed them without resisting as they took him to a sham of a trial. In fact, three trials. As they beat him, as they spit in his face, 
as they punched him in the face, as they whipped him, as they reviled him, he would not so much as utter one single word in his defense. He wouldn't do it. As he was questioned, as he was found guilty, as he was ultimately tortured to death, not one word in his own defense. Anyone else who had ever been on trial for their lives were screaming and fighting and yelling, I didn't do it, whether they were innocent or not, but not Jesus. In fact, he was so quiet that the people who questioned him thought he was out of his mind. He refused to speak on his own behalf. That's what it means to be prouse. That's what proutase is. That's what biblical meekness is. That's what biblical gentleness is. It's not cowardice. It doesn't mean you're a sissy. What it is is harnessing of your power. You have the power, but you refuse to use it for your own advantage. It's keeping it under control when people violate you. It's keeping it under control when they say all kinds of terrible things about you, when they mistreat you, when they violate your rights. It's keeping it under control and maintaining a submissive posture even when people are sitting on your back pulling on your ears. Even when people are putting antlers on your head and taking pictures of you, figuratively speaking, of course. Listen, it's refusing to speak a word in your own defense. That's meekness. Now I want you to think about that for a minute. The gentle and the meek man quietly endures the wrongs that are committed against him. He quietly endures all the wrongdoing. But when the master is violated, the meek man takes his gloves off and it's time to get in the fight. Do you understand? The gentle and the meek person, he's not a sissy. He's someone who refuses to unleash his power for his own good. Are you following me? He's someone who refuses to take a stand for his own good. In fact, he is very strong. Who else could harness that kind of power? But the strong man, he's very strong. He just refuses to lash out to preserve himself and to defend himself. He refuses to do that. But if someone violates the Master, if someone violates the Word of God, his power is released against it. His power is released against sin. He has an anger that is holy, but he controls it. Do you understand? You see, that type of power, that type of controlled power is characteristic of people of your position. Do you understand what I'm saying to you? See, the people of the world would say, I don't have to put up with that. I don't have to take that. If he had said that to me, I would have done this. That's one of my favorites. People talking about what they would have done. Well, if I was there, I would have done this. Have you ever heard that? That's the way the the world tries to, to, to conduct itself. But listen to me, friends. People of your position don't act that way. We don't say, I wouldn't have put up with that. He can't talk to me that way. And can I just tell you the truth? I've struggled with that this week myself on a couple of different occasions. People have said things that I feel like, I don't, I'm not putting up with that. How many of you have dealt with that this week? I don't have to put up with that. You can't treat me that way. You're not talking to me like that. I don't know who you think you are. But listen, friends, people of your position, people of my position, do not lash out because of wrongs that are committed against us. You following? We don't lash out because of wrongs that are committed against us. Those we gently and we humbly and we meekly endure quietly. Yet, if someone offends your master, if someone offends the Word of God, 
then it's a different story. Then we have a reason to be deeply offended and we have a reason to have holy anger in our hearts against the sin that violates the holiness of God. But those against us, we endure them. That's what the Word teaches. We become angry over sin. We become angry over a world that mistreats God and mistreats Jesus Christ. Friends, listen to me. It's not funny to us when people make a mockery of the things of God. It's not a joke. When people make a mockery of the things of God and when they make a mockery of sin, do we laugh at that? Is that funny to us? It's not funny to people of our position, is it? We should be offended on God's behalf. It's not funny when people do this. It's a serious matter for people of your position when other people sin against your master. That's a serious matter to you. This is why Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 6. This is very important. Listen, if you haven't heard anything I've said today, listen to this. This is the reason that Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 6 that we are not to be partnered together with unbelievers. Listen to me. Meek and gentle believers could never live in harmony with someone whose lifestyle is a constant affront to the things of God. Does that make sense to you? You cannot live that way. What partnership can you have with someone who constantly violates and offends your master? What partnership can you have as someone of your position with someone who constantly offends God? How can you do that? How can that be funny to you? How can you enjoy that kind of company? How can you quietly stand by and watch people who seem to look for the most vile possible way to offend the one who died for you? Young people... Listen to me. If you truly are believers, you have absolutely no business dating and marrying people who are non-believers. If you do, you will be constantly at odds with your mate or you will be constantly at odds with God. It's one of the two. You will be constantly at odds with your mate or you will be constantly at odds with God. Because what partnership does the righteousness of God, which has been made yours through Jesus Christ in Ephesians chapter 1, what partnership does that have with the lawlessness of an unbelieving mate or spouse? It has none. And so you know what's going to happen? They're constantly going to offend your master. And if you're a true believer, people of your position won't put up with that. And what's going to happen is you're constantly going to fight for his, on his behalf. This is why you don't partner yourself with unbelievers. Because you're constantly going to have conflict in your relationship. As they offend your master, you are going to want to stand up and defend him. Can you live like that? No. Who would want to? But friends, listen to me. Just like Jesus Christ, people of your position do not raise their voices in the interest of self-preservation. Just like your master, Jesus Christ, people of your position only raise their voices in matters that offend God. Do you see that? You're meek. You're gentle. You endure the wrong. But when it comes to an offense against God, you stand up and you take a stand no matter what it costs you. Without any thought of what might happen to you, you take a stand on His behalf. Only in the interest of your master. Father, I thank you for Jesus Christ. And I thank you, Lord, that even though he had the power to fight in his meekness and in his gentleness, he became submissive even to death on a cross. I ask you, Father, that the meekness and the gentleness of Jesus Christ would become a characterization of who we are and that it would characterize who we are right here at Root River Church. 
God, I ask that you would give us humble and gentle hearts that are not willing to defend ourselves, but are willing to fight to defend our holy God. Jesus, we're in awe of you. We're in awe of your meekness and your gentleness. We're in awe of the fact that you have transcended time and space to come to willingly offer yourself as the only sacrifice who could take away sin once for all. And now, Lord, as we come together to take a few moments to remember the sacrifice that you made for us, I pray that you will be honored by our humble and meek hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.